All right, Isaiah 6 today. Um, we've been talking about it a little bit on and off for um, since we started. But, uh, but there's one big question that should be on your mind. And I actually, I actually um, raised this as a question when we started the book. Or made the observation, I guess I would say, when we started the book. And the question is, um, why does the call of Isaiah, which is essentially chronologically the first event in the book, why does that event not, why is that event not recorded until chapter 6? And uh, I, I want to I give you a chance to answer, but let me just make one further kind of observation connected to that question. It, the, the fact that it's not until Isaiah 6 that it's recorded is... Um, it's a reminder to us that it's not meant to be strictly chronological, that the book is organized a little bit differently than that. So a lot of times you just assume when you come into a book, it's going to be written chronologically. And sometimes that's a good assumption, but not necessarily. And in the case of Isaiah, we know now, okay, he's organizing things thematically. So that's, that's the observation I'll make just to kind of surface level. But the question I'm asking you is just to think about why. Why wait until this section, until five chapters in, to, to, to record the first chronological event? And, and I, I don't know that there's a, I mean, there probably are a bunch of wrong answers, but I, I don't know if it's, there's an absolutely clear right answer to this, but I want you to think about it. So what, what do you think? Why, why wait to record this event? When you're already into the book, and we've already talked about some of the message of the book, and you know the context of the book, and all that stuff. Any thoughts, ideas, um, guesses? I think it uh, gives some background as to why he's being called. It's like understanding. Where Israel's at, what God thinks about it, and Good. Kind of what his plan is, and then it's like, oh, here's how we're going to tell Israel about it, or here's how we can kind of get them on board with, hey, you got to fix this kind of thing. Good. So that that's that's a really good observation. So we already one one good thing about it, or one helpful thing about it is, although chronologically the call must have happened first, this does sort of set the stage for it in terms of what the problem is with Israel. As, Part of at least the answer to what God's going to do about it. We already know that even though it hasn't really been fleshed out, there's this there's this branch that's going to arise, this kind of messianic figure. That's he's going to be at the center of everything. We've already been told that. We already know the situation that Israel's in, why they, you know, what kinds of sins they're committing, what God's um, judgment is upon them. So that's good. So we've got background in terms of you know. Uh, Israel's sin, uh, some at least initial um, exploration of you know what God's going to do about it, uh, God's solution. We've used this framework in every chapter. This kind of because because he goes back and forth between diagnosis and and remedy, uh, or diagnosis and cure if you want to think in, in kind of medical terms. And, and he does do that in those first five chapters. There's a lot of diagnosis. There's a little bit of remedy. Um, so all that's really good background. Any other thoughts um, about as to why chapter 6 
or why the, the call of Isaiah isn't recorded for us in this text until, until chapter 6? I can live with this answer. I can, we, can, we, can, we can work with this. So I'm okay with starting, starting from this. Um, th- there probably are, I mean, there's also probably a structural reason. Um, I've talked about this just a little bit, but if you look, if you kind of outline carefully the content of 1 through 5 and the content of 7 through 12, you'll see that they mirror one another. Um, there's a kind of parallelism. So just structurally speaking... There's, there's a, you know, there's a kind of, uh, I, I'm, this is just, this is just really, um, this is, this is a really broad outline, but there's this kind of, you know, A, B, and then, and then there's a center, and the center is chapter six. So what that does from a, from a literary perspective is it actually, although to us it would seem like you should begin with this if you want to emphasize it, or you should end with it. In fact, that's actually what we would do. We would kind of culminate with that to really emphasize this event. But a lot of times in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, what you see, and, and you see this in other ancient Near Eastern literature, is, is the focal point is here. And so you, you just have to kind of think differently about about the climactic moment. So there's that literary thing going on as well. That's a little harder to see when you do what we're doing, which is like go through chapter by chapter because you, you sort of lose the forest for the trees. But it's there. Uh, but I like this, this background material. Now, what's the, um, what's the immediate context in 6.1? What's the time frame in which this takes place um, in, in chapter 6, verse 1? Right, in the year the king Uzziah died. Now, what do we know, and we just touched on this, I think, the first week we were together, so it, it, you may not remember, but what do we know about the reign of King Uzziah um, from other, well, we don't really learn much about him, actually, in Isaiah, uh, because Isaiah's ministry starts right at the end, but what do we know from other Old Testament historical texts about Uzziah. What kind of king was he? What are some of the high points, low points? Yeah. He was very prosperous and built built up um, the kingdom a lot. Right. And then at the end of his life became proud and was struck with leprosy. Correct. Yeah. So all that's really important. From a from a big picture perspective, if you said, was Uzziah a good king or a bad king? You'd say he was a good king. Mm-hmm. And he was generally very faithful to the Lord, generally very faithful leading the people. He was successful and prosperous. So this was a time period in Judah. So we're in the southern kingdom of Judah. When Judah was um, experiencing relative peace, he reigned for decades. So he had a very long reign, a very prosperous reign, generally a very godly reign. But there was the one thing he did that caused God to strike him with leprosy at the end. And, and it's kind of, I think it's kind of significant to remember what that is in order to understand what Isaiah is going through here. Do you remember, do you remember why God struck him with that disease um, near the end of his reign? He tried to offer up incense in the temple. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So it, 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 here's how Second Chronicles puts it, just really uh, one verse summary. Second Chronicles twenty six sixteen, and we also read about this, by the way, in in Second Kings. But we'll read. I'll read the Second Chronicles one. Um, but when he was strong, this is, just think about the phrasing of all this. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, now there, every word of that is, is highly significant to what Isaiah is going to uh, experience. And, and actually, every word of that is really significant in terms of Isaiah's message. Because, um, so well, let's, let's, start, let's start and walk through what's said there. So first of all, it's when he when he grew strong. So first of all, his strength is not a um, is not seen as a as a positive thing necessarily, but a, a real temptation. Um, in Deuteronomy, when the people are about to enter the land and they're kind of right there in the Transjordan, looking into the land, and the Lord gives them these final instructions through Moses. And what he says is, you've got to be careful of two things, two situations. The first situation, and actually the more dangerous of the two, is you go into the land and you're really prosperous. And the Lord gives you peace, and you're enjoying the fruit of the land, and you're planting vineyards, and you're building houses, and things are going really well. Be very careful when that happens. Because what he says in Deuteronomy Eight is you're going to be tempted to forget the Lord, and and, and don't be, be be on guard at that moment because at that moment you're going to start to say very naturally, you know, look what I've done, or even if you don't take credit for it, even if you give the credit to the Lord, you're going to sort of say, I'm I'm in good shape. I, I you're not going to be you know you're not clinging to the Lord anymore because you don't feel like you need to. Um, you know, we tend to cling to God or really seek Him out when we know our own need. When we know that, you know, I, I don't know where else to turn. I, I, I'm in this, I'm, I feel like I'm trapped in a corner, so now I reach out and cling to the Lord. But you, we tend as humans not to do that when, when we're prosperous, when, the, when our bank account's really large, and when things are going well for us relationally, and we're, we're, we're just moving ahead. So, so, so Moses warns them against that. And then Moses also gives them another scenario, which is also if you're suffering, then you're at risk as well, because then when you're suffering, you might be tempted to turn your back on the Lord and sort of say, what's he ever done for me? I don't, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't want anything to do with him because he's rejected me. So there, there's danger on both sides. But actually, if you were to ask Moses... And, and this is clear in the text. If you were to ask Moses, okay, Moses, I get that there are temptations both ways, but, but what's the greater one? You'd say, oh, the greater one's definitely success. But that's really where the temptation lies. That's where more people have fallen than, than in the context of suffering. Because actually what we find, paradoxically, is that um, generally speaking, when God's people are suffering, not in every case, there's a temptation there, but... Generally speaking, uh, the Lord uses those situations to draw them closer to himself. And, and they draw near to him, and he draws near to them. But the point of 
all that is to say that Uzziah was strong. And that was uh, the, the, the precondition for his undoing. Um, now, what he does is he's strong, and then his heart grows proud. And these two things are actually at the root of the early part of Isaiah's testimony against the people. Because remember, if you looked at externally at Judah during the beginning part of Isaiah's ministry, it changes towards the end. But at the beginning part of Isaiah's ministry, if you looked at Judah, you'd say, Judah's in pretty good shape. They've pretty much figured out a way to keep their enemies at bay on both sides. You know, you've got the, the kind of, uh, you know, Assyrian Babylonian side and the Egyptian side. They're always in conflict, but they've kind of kept them at bay. They've come up with a nice uh, scenario here. And, and, uh, and, and so this, this is a big part of Isaiah's message at the beginning. You, you need to actually trust the Lord. And not look to, to these things. And so Uzziah kind of exemplifies that. But the other thing that Uzziah did, the kind of the actual action that he took that, that leads to this um, leprosy, is Uzziah enters the temple of the Lord to offer incense. Now, what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is that kings are not allowed in there. There, there's only a certain group of people who are allowed to offer incense. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter whether you command the military. or it it, None of that matters. You, you have to be a Levite, a priest, and, and actually, you know, a kind of priest on rotation to do that. And, and the high priest goes in after Uzziah and recognizes what he's done and condemns him. And he, I mean, he knows instantly that this is a problem. It's not unlike... What Saul does, remember the first king of Israel, and that's the United Kingdom, and he, uh, he's, he's, he's waiting and waiting and waiting to offer these sacrifices to the Lord, which he thinks are going to kind of you know, make God happy and, and lead to his further success. And so he starts offering sacrifices on the altar. And, and that's the final straw where the Lord says, you know, you, that's it, I've, I've had it with Saul. Um, so Uzziah kind of does the same thing. But, you know, to put yourself in Uzziah's shoes, uh, he'd been reigning a long time. You know how when you're doing something for a long time, maybe maybe tend to feel a little more comfortable, tend to maybe be tempted to take a little more uh, uh, latitude and not kind of follow the rules. And that's definitely where Uzziah was in his life and in his reign. And... Um, and, 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 and he was generally godly as well, so he probably could excuse it from all kinds of angles. But, but nonetheless, the Lord strikes him down. Now, just parenthetically, I want to I also say this. Um, the, the basic rule is, in Israel, priests can't be kings and kings can't be priests. Right? Those are separate functions. So, if you're a king, you can't be a priest. If you're a priest, you can't be a king. And Uzziah violates that rule. He crosses that line. All right, so all that needs to be in the background because what does he say he saw in the year that King Uzziah died? And where was he in the year that King Uzziah died? Like, where, where did this kind of vision take him in the year that King Uzziah died? What, what's, what's the next descriptive uh, 
what's the next sentence in verse 1? What does he say? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, this should hit you now at a number of different levels. Because what Uzziah did was as a king, he crossed the line and went into the temple. He had lifted himself up. He was proud in his own heart. And so he went into the temple in violation of of what God said. But now what Isaiah sees, first of all, Isaiah is now in the temple, which would have been a scary thing because he knows what happens when people cross that line. And now he's in the temple. But, But it's not just about himself. What he sees is a vision of something that would have, in a sense, been kind of unimaginable, which is a king sitting on a throne whose whose robe kind of fills the whole temple. So here you actually have a king in the temple, high and lifted up. He's not lifted up in his own heart. He's actually elevated. And the train of his robe fills the whole temple. So even though... The ironclad rule in Israel is priests can't be kings, kings can't be priests. Isaiah sees a vision of of a king who's reigning over the temple. One who is a king priest and who has as his sphere the whole temple and, and is high and lifted up. Now, who is this? Well, it's the Lord. It's not the word Yahweh that's used there. Um, it's just... Uh, Lord in the kind of, um, I mean, I think we would say it is the Lord in the sense that we mean, but, but that's not the language that Isaiah uses. He doesn't say, I saw Yahweh. He says, I saw, I saw this Lord, um, this, you know, you might say sometimes it's translated as a king or, 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 or something like that. Um, and it's, it's a different word. So he sees now, he sees a Lord, let's say he sees a Lord sitting on the throne, lifted up in the temple. And that that's just category exploding for Isaiah. And here's what, here's how the rest of it goes. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his um, feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, that is the word Yahweh. You can see in your your translation, it's all caps. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, Now, let's just stop there and talk about this. Um, Isaiah sees a king ruling over the temple, who's this Lord. And... And then what Isaiah sees are these, these angelic beings around that throne, and they're, they're declaring one thing about Yahweh, which is that he is holy. In fact, they say it three times. In, in Hebrew, um, the way you intensify, the, the, the way the language is constructed. And intensification happens by, um, by doubling something. So, so, for instance, a good example of this that you'd be really familiar with is 
is the holy of holies. Um, you know, in the tabernacle or the temple, there's the there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. Or sometimes in modern translations, they'll call it the most holy place, and that's that's legitimate translation. But the way the idiom works in Hebrew is holy of holies. Or or another one you'll be familiar with is in is in uh, in a book title that we have in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs. Um, what what does that mean? It means kind of the I mean, this sounds weird, but it's it's like the most songiest song. It's the most significant of the songs. Um, so everything we talked about last semester about songs in the Bible and how they work. Uh, well, this is the the most of that. This is the it's an intensification. It's the song of songs. So what's happening here, though, is is really profound because because there's an intensification. That would be like the holy of holies, but then there's like a another level of intensification, which which doesn't even really translate idiomatically, because you can't go beyond most holy. Um, it, it, you know, maybe we'd say like the most most holy, but but that almost sounds trite, like when you just add very 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 on top of something. But but it, this is this is a, a a super intensification of the reality of the holiness of, of the Lord. Now that then should lead us to ask the question, and maybe you know the answer already. What does this mean? If the Lord is not just, I mean, He's holy, holy, holy. Um. What is that word about? And why is it so foundational when we talk or think about, about God, about who God is? What does it even mean? Any idea? I mean, we use it, but what does it mean? One is it's that he's good, but the second thing is that he's separate. And I think good is kind of like the layman's way of saying it. Like it's more than just good. Um, but when I hear holy, I think like pure, separate, above anything. Uh, but because of his quality of it, righteousness is used to describe us, but I guess that's that's a piece of it. Something along those lines. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really good starting place. So, the the word um, at its root, if you kind of analyze it etymologically, both in Hebrew and in Greek, does come from a word that means to separate. Um, and so, I think that's a good starting place to say separate or other. Now. Now we'll start there. We're going to have to say more, and you did say more, Ryan. But um, I just want to start with that and say, how does that map out on on the rest of the Bible? Well, the reason this is a good and this is an important starting place is that there, when when we talk about God's holiness, we do immediately have to talk about His attributes. Uh, we have to talk about His goodness. We have to talk about His power. We have to talk about all of these. 
all of these attributes that, that we would we sort of distinguish out but are really just one essence in God to its ultimate degree. Um, but, but holy can be used sometimes of other things like, for instance, you'll find in the temple, we've talked about the temple and the tabernacle a little bit with the most holy place, um, you'll find like a holy lampstand, for instance. Well, it doesn't have a moral quality to it. It's not really a moral, it's not a being, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. Um, and it's a thing that's made, actually, by people. So it's not even, it's, it's created, you could say, but it's, it's actually even shaped by created beings. Um, but, but nonetheless, it's holy. And what that means is it's set apart, it's different. It's, it's other than, it's not a regular cup. It's a cup that's used in the temple. It's a holy cup. It's not it's a regular lampstand. Like you might have in a big house, it's a it's a lampstand for the temple, and so and so at a basic level, it's set apart for a specific purpose. Um, it's up, it's different than everything else. Now, when we talk about the Lord as being holy, though, you're absolutely right. We immediately have to kind of expand on that and talk about all these other attributes of God. But the the important thing about starting with holiness is that that means whenever we talk about these other attributes, like his goodness, like his love, like his you know, eternality, or, 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 or any of these things, we immediately recognize that the way in which we're talking about them is qualitatively, I mean, there's a difference. So, so it can be said, and sometimes the Bible will say, you mentioned righteousness. Um, it can be said that you know, someone performs a righteous action. Or something like that. Um, that that's said in the scriptures of people, or or this is a good thing that was done. Um, Jesus says this uh, when when the the woman uh, uh, near his death uh, breaks this perfume over his feet, anoints him, and he says, "What she's done is good. This is a good thing." But but when we talk about the goodness of God, we're in a different category. We can, we can draw some analogies, we can, we can learn some things, we can kind of climb up the ladder from she did a good thing to God is, is pure good. Um, but holiness is kind of pointing us in that direction. Holiness is saying all these things that God is, not just that God possesses, he's not made up of parts, but all these things that God is, all that is in God is it can be described, if you had to pick one word, the word to pick is holy. Because, because any other word isn't going isn't to remind you or emphasize the difference, the otherness of God. You know, at a basic level, you take verse 1 of the Bible, even if that's all you have, is, is Genesis 1.1. What you realize is there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. There is a, a, you know, this, it's different. Um, you know, there are differences between all of us, um, and those are real, and those, some of them are profound, and some of them are very superficial, but, but that's not really the same kind of difference. The difference between the Creator, the self-existent, eternal one, and us because we're because if nothing else we're totally contingent we're we're, we're everything it, it just the our hearts beating everything our birth 
it, it, we're contingent. It's contingency all the way down for us. We're creatures. Um, but God's not. He's uncreated. He's pure essence. He is, he's not contingent at all. There's no contingency there. There's nothing getting behind it or above, uh, or above him or below him. He's, he's, he is God. And, and so holiness is, that's why holiness is such a significant, you could say it's an attribute, but it's really the ground for all the attributes of God. Now, now just, just, it's worth pausing there and just reflecting for a moment on, on our own conception of God. Even, even as you kind of live your life, read your Bible, pray a little bit, come to, come to church. Um, is that weightiness, is that sometimes actually how the word um, kadosh is, is translated to, or kind of weight? Um, is that weightiness of the distance, of the creator-creature distinction, of the, of the fact that God is pure act and a non-contingent being, the only non-contingent being, is all of that, you know, how, how much is that in the front of your, of your thinking? Even as you look at yourself and you say, you know, no matter what happens in my life, no matter what I do or don't do, you know, at the, at the end of it all, I'm totally contingent. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Like the fact that there's a you in there, the fact that, you know, there, that you have consciousness that you are, um, and then the fact that you're healthy and walking around, but just the fact that you are and, 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 and are not not, uh, which is profound, it, it's all contingent. And so, and so if that's what the angels are saying constantly, uh, that needs to be at the, at the ground level of our understanding of who God is. And, and so it's not about, you know, sometimes even the way the gospel is presented is like, you're you, and that's great, and that's hugely important, that's central to the universe, and here's how God can kind of attenuate that, here's how God can kind of make that even better. Um, but that's not really it. That's not, that's not actually how the universe is structured, or it's not really even an explanation for your being. Um, and so this is, this is, this is, Act, this is central. This is this is the whole thing. This is the starting place. And and by the way, by the way, with respect to Uzziah's problem, Uzziah's sin against the Lord, this this sort of explains everything. You know, Uzziah, I know you've been reigning for thirty years, and you've basically been godly, and you've gotten very comfortable with holy things, but. You, you know, you can't, like, I'm, I'm the thrice holy God. And so there's not an excusing what Uzziah did. And, and it actually shows the severity of what Uzziah did. Now, it goes on to call him the Lord of hosts, which is also significant. Because if this is the basic thing that, you know, if you don't know this before Isaiah's ministry, then Isaiah sometimes is going to seem harsh and 
what he's predicting is going to seem peculiar or impossible or, you know, all that. But, but we're t- this is the God we're talking about. But the, other, the, the next thing that's said about him is that he's, he's Yahweh of hosts. He's um, what uh, they, the, the phrase that Luther used in a mighty fortress, or at least in the English version of a mighty fortress is Lord Sabaoth. That's Lord of hosts. Um, but what does that mean? Well, what it means is he's, he's thrice holy. He's the God who is the ground of all being. And, and he's also Yahweh of, of armies. I mean, I mean, whatever Isaiah is going to say about Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, and, and about a lot of other Gentiles nations as well that were powerful at different times, we're going to get into a whole section of woes against all of these nations. Whatever he's going to say, um, we're talking about the Yahweh of armies here. So, you, you know, Assyria is, and he actually the Lord does this in Isaiah. It's recorded for us in Isaiah. It's also recorded in some other extra biblical Assyrian texts for us, which is kind of interesting. But, like, there's an episode in Isaiah where the Assyrian army is surrounding Jerusalem, and they say to, to the king, basically, tomorrow you're, it's over for you. And the king goes and prays to the Lord. And even the, the, um, the Assyrian records tell us that, you know, they were basically writing back saying, we've got, we've got Jerusalem trapped like a bird in a cage. But then something happens. And Isaiah tells us what happens, which is the one angel of the Lord goes through and kills over 100,000 of their troops. Now, the, the Assyrians just say basically they had they, a bunch of people died, and they're, they're like they, 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 they frame it differently, but they, they admit this is what happened. And so, so, so that's one angel on one night who takes out the whole Assyrian army. And we're talking here about Yahweh of hosts, plural. Um, so, so that's significant too, because you have to know he's this, and you also have to know that whatever he tells you. You know, he's the one you need to be listening to. He's the most powerful person in the room at any given time, if you can, if we can think of it that way. So he tells you not to make a treaty with the Egyptians, but you think well, we have to, or else we're getting no, no, no. You're talking about the Lord of Hosts here. You, you have to do what he tells you to do. That's the point for Israel. And then, and then there's another, there's another uh, point that's driven home in verse three. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you're sitting in Judah thinking, or, or, or now you're sitting you know, in your seat and you're thinking, you know, I, I love God and, and I love what he's done and, and he's, you know, it's, it's been right, it's, it's all been good for me. And, 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 and other people are saying, well, that's fine for you. Um, I'm glad that that's helped you. I'm glad that that's worked for you. But, um, but you know, I've got other things going on. I've got other problems. I'm glad your God, your gospel has worked. Your Bible makes sense to you, but, but you know, just, just leave me alone. But what Isaiah 6 is saying, no, no, no. The whole earth. Everything. Um, and, and you can understand why he can make a universal statement like that, because if God's the holy God, who's the ground of all being, then of course the whole earth is full of his glory. Because Every place you look on the earth, you're dealing with contingent beings. 
and you're and you're dealing with created things, all of which, if you if you press them, would have to say, um, in Him we live and move and have our being. And so and so, of course, it's universal. And of course, everything Isaiah is going to say while he's going to point it at Judah, it's never just about Judah. It's actually about the whole world. So the Messiah is going to be given to Judah to rescue Judah. But it's not really just about rescuing Judah, although it is about that. It's a starting place for the whole world. It it takes us forward to what Jesus says in Acts 2, right before he ascends into heaven, where he says to his disciples, here's how it's going to work. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Go into all the world uh, and make disciples because I'm with you always. And all all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what Isaiah, um, well, these truths about God are so foundational that, you know, we could, we could spend, well, we don't have that much more time because you all have to leave in a minute, but um, we could spend a long time just tracing out that verse and those concepts through the rest of the Bible. Because what you start to realize when you sort of pull the thread of the holiness of God, or pull the thread of Lord of hosts, or pull the thread of the whole earth is full of his glory, what you start to realize is, oh, that's the basis for everything. That's, that's the kind of ground level assumption of all of scripture. And if I've missed that, or if Isaiah didn't get that early on, it all, you're just sort of, it's like this puzzle with, big pieces missing. Or it just doesn't, it just doesn't, doesn't all make sense. But there's more because Isaiah also has this experience where the whole foundations of everything shake. And, um, and, and, and the voice of God or the voice of the one calling is what does it. And, and and it's essentially God's word is it's like destroying everything. It's, it's shaking up everything. And so Isaiah responds in the appropriate way, which is, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And, and how does he know that? Because he says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Lord of armies, right? I've seen the king. Remember, he's introduced as the Lord at the beginning, but it's not Yahweh. I've actually seen the real king uh, now. And he's in the temple, and he rules the temple. Not like Uzziah, where there's you can't do both. I've seen the real king. I've seen the real Lord of armies. And what that has done for me is it has not made me say what some people say, you know, when they walk out from somewhere... What a great worship service. I just feel like just feel so charged and energized and good about myself. And you know, I love I love that. Um, he says, I've encountered the Lord, and and it, it's devastating to me in terms of my understanding of who I am and my look at who everybody else is. And, and you know, this is always what happens when people actually encounter the Lord. They, they actually don't walk out like charged up and like feeling great about the week. Um, they they're just they're just blown away. Some of the some of the it's generally more uh, newer songs. Generally, you don't find this in the in the um, 
older hymns, but in some newer songs that you might be familiar with or, you know, sing from time to time, it's like, you know, Lord, show us your glory, Lord, you know, come be with us, and that's great, you know, but but just know that um, the, the, the handful of times that happens in the Bible, um, it, 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 it's, it just, it rocks everything. And 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 and, peop- and what happens actually is is when you're really confronted by God, and this can happen. It's not just about public worship and music. This can happen when you're reading the Bible, when you're praying, when you're you know this. this is, but when you really like when it confronts you, when He confronts you, this is this is what happens. This is how people respond when they're confronted with God, and it's it's a reflex response. Isaiah doesn't say. You know what, the right thing for me to say, like the kind of thing I've learned to say is, woe is me, for I am undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. No, no, you're not just like saying it because it's like written in the bulletin to say after you read the law of God. It's it like he can't but say that at this point because because he's been confronted with God's holiness. Now, um, I guess you have to go, right? So 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 we'll 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 I think it's fine. We'll we'll devote we'll devote another week to Isaiah six because because we have to understand this chapter to make sense of the whole. So we'll pick up with what happens next. I mean, when when you're undone in that way, what's the solution, and how does that solution? And then the and then the the instructions after the solution is given. How does that shape what Isaiah is about and, and what his message is to us? So we'll deal with that next week because we're out of time. Let me just pray quickly, Lord. We are very grateful for your word, and we recognize that we're just scratching the surface of it. We really feel that, but um, but we still thank you for the brief time you've given to us and the brief encounter you've given us with your word. But really what we ask is that these truths uh, would sink deeply into our hearts and shape us, shape our understanding of ourselves and shape uh, our understanding of you and the world in which you've placed us. And so... We ask that you would do that, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.